verse 15. And yes, I know we've read this uh, before. So I reserve the right to slip uh, dramatically in the future. I'm just not doing it this morning. He said, Jesus speaking, if you love me, keep my commandments and I will pray the father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, and then here for this morning, for he dwells with you, speaking to Christians, and will be in you, as he speaks to these disciples. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you in the person of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together now. Father, we thank you for our Savior. We thank you for the indescribable price that he paid for us to be saved and for us to be blessed, for us to be saved and be blessed in all the ways that we're blessed here this morning. Lord, there isn't one area of this Christian life that's been blood bought that we want to fall short of possessing and making a part of our daily lives. If you've provided it for us, we want that fully, Lord, to be expressed in us. And so we pray Related to this area of the Holy Spirit that we'll be looking at this morning, that not a single Christian would leave here today without experience in the fullness that is ours in Christ. We pray for each one that stands before you now that has not yet trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. And we pray that they would hear your voice today just quietly and privately in this room, Lord, and that today they would realize they've been made for fellowship with you, and they would begin that relationship in Christ as well. And we ask it in his name, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We remember that Jesus is with his disciples in an upper room in the city of Jerusalem on the night before his crucifixion. He has spoken to the disciples of the fact that he is going to be soon departing from them physically. And that created a dramatic fear in their hearts over the idea that he would be leaving them. And so the tone of the entire meeting that's going on in Jesus' teaching to them is dominated by this sense of a coming separation. And Jesus begins to comfort them concerning this coming separation by declaring an awful lot of things to them in chapters 13 through 17 or chapter yeah, 13 through 17 and principally beginning in, in chapter 14. And in this discourse or this teaching, and it's known as the upper room discourse, it's named after the location that Jesus gave it in, in that upper room, among many, many important things that he spoke to the disciples, he spoke to them perhaps dominantly about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Chapters 13 through 17 of the gospel, according to John, is, contains one of the greatest revelations concerning the person and work of the Holy Spirit to be found in the entire Bible. Obviously, this dynamic of the Holy Spirit in a Christian's life is very, very important to Jesus because he spends so much time on it. 
I'd like you to allow me to recap Jesus' teaching concerning the Holy Spirit that we've looked at thus far before we tear into uh, something new in the, in the same vein this morning. We've seen that Jesus taught that the Holy Spirit is a person. He is not an it. The Holy Spirit provides us with power, the how, the power to live the what of God's word, the power to live this Christian life. He's described the Holy Spirit is as another helper, a helper just like Jesus. He'll never ask us to do anything that Jesus wouldn't ask us to do. He will never cause us to do something that would be inconsistent with what we would ever know Jesus to do or to say. He abides with us forever because our ministries are never over. He's described as the spirit of truth. He can't lie. He can always be trusted to tell us the truth. He, the world cannot receive him, Jesus said. But that's never a reflection on the Holy Spirit. That's a reflection upon them. He will teach us all things. The Holy Spirit loves to make much of the word of God. He will bring all things to our remembrance. And he loves to make much of Jesus. He loves to testify to Jesus, to glorify Jesus. Now, why would I recap all of those things and take your time in doing so? The reason that I do that is I think very often in many Christians' lives, when they think of the person of the Holy Spirit, they just think of him as playing some minor but significant part in their life and that he's around when things get really hard and you need a big miracle. You need to be cleansed of leprosy or you need to be raised from the dead or you need to be healed. Something like that. That's when he comes on the scene. And I like it to be reinforced in our lives as Christians that the work of the Holy Spirit, what he brings to the Christian life is very, very far reaching. He intends to have a dominant place in our lives as Christians. So it isn't just this. We need him every five years and we can call out to him and trust that he has the ability to do what we need him to do at the moment. He desires to have a daily influence upon our lives and to be working in our lives and through our lives on a daily basis. And so I think as we know these things, then as we experience those things from God, we recognize, ah, this is a part of the supernatural of the Christian life. This is the Holy Spirit bringing that passage to my remembrance. This is the Holy Spirit causing my heart to soar with praise when I think about Jesus and what he's done for me. He's become a part of my singing now. He's become a part of my worship experience. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit within our lives. Now, for our purposes this morning, I want us to notice two prepositions in verse 17. The word with and the word in. Now, let me stop right here. Because I know I'm about to lose at least 20% of the room. The moment you mention a preposition, people immediately check out. How important could that be? Let me say this, and I think it's important to mention every once in a while, and I don't think I do it often enough. I assume motivation in the listener in this room. Anything that is worth learning in life requires concentration. It requires an effort. I've got to bring the want to to the table to understand these things. And so when God's word requires that we kind of buckle our brains down 
in order to understand these majestic things that are ours in Christ, it's worth the effort to do so. I think we're used to video games and used to TV, used to all these things that just do everything for us. And the moment we come in a room like this and then something is demanded, then we get these glazed expressions on our our faces and we begin to think about a million different things. It's worth the effort. And there's going to be a movie or a little bit around today, but I won't be unnecessarily tedious at, at all. So I want us to notice these two prepositions in verse 17, the word with number one and the word in. Let me read the verse once again. You follow with me. The spirit of truth, Jesus describing him, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he dwells. Now circle it in your mind, if not in your Bible. He dwells with you and he shall be. And then circle the next word in your mind, if not in your Bible. He will be in you. In the New Testament, Jesus uses three Greek prepositions to describe the relationship that he desires every single one of his followers to have with the person of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is real. He is in this room. He is in this world. He's more real than the chairs that you're sitting on. He's more real than the pulpit that I am standing behind. And in verse 17, we have two of those three prepositions. And the first Greek preposition that Jesus speaks of is the word with. In the Greek, it's para, P-A-R-A. We get our word parallel uh, from this. And it means, uh, to, it means to be with. It means to come alongside. And so the Holy Spirit is with all of us as Christians. He dwells with you and he will be in you. The Holy Spirit is everywhere all at the same time. He's God. He cannot help but be everywhere all at the same time. And thus he's always present with us as Christians. He was even present with us before we came to know the Lord. I think of how many of us can look back in, to the days before we were Christians And we realize, I never should have survived that accident. I never should have survived that almost drowning. I never should have made it out of this situation. I can look back now and I can see that God was at work around my life long before I became a Christian. That's because the Holy Spirit was with us at that time. And He continues that ministry of being with us even after we become Christians. And then the second Greek preposition, Jesus said he'll be in us, speaking to the disciples. And, and so the Greek word for our English word, I-N, is the Greek word E-N, and it means in. And this experience with the Holy Spirit occurs when we're born again. When we're born again, God's Holy Spirit comes inside our lives. The spirit, being born again is a spiritual birth. It is God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit coming into our lives at our invitation. And it is that event that makes us Christians. Nobody can be a Christian without uh, the Holy Spirit coming into their lives. People talk today, they say, well, you know, are you a Christian? I was watching someone on television some time ago. I won't name him. But um, somebody asked him if he was a Christian. He said, yes, I'm a Christian. And he was just as quick to declare, but I'm not one of those born-again Christians. 
I'm sorry, there are no other Christians but born-again Christians. No one can be a Christian except that the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, being born again by the Holy Spirit, as Jesus declared. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul wrote and he said, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Romans chapter 8, verse 9. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. That is, he is not Christ. Every single Christian has the Holy Spirit in them or else we can't be a Christian. And so... uh, When did this happen for the disciples? He speaks to them here in verse 17 as this being a future event, the Holy Spirit coming into their lives. And so we ask ourselves, when did that happen? We know when it happened in our lives. It was when we trusted in Christ for our salvation. So when did it happen with the disciples? It happened when Jesus appeared to the disciples on the evening of his resurrection. And it's recorded in John chapter 20. So just turn a few pages to the right. That same book. To John chapter 20. And I want you to see these verses that we'll be looking at this morning with your own eyes. I think it's wonderful that things happen in a room like this where we're hearing the word of God. And sometimes we're hearing certain things for the first time. And we'll remember forever. I remember seeing that verse. I remember hearing it taught on. It was on this side of the page this far up. I want that to happen in everybody's life. That's one of the problems with these with a Bible that's on your phone. You don't have that experience. But I'm old school. I'll always carry a Bible. But then I thought I'd never learn a computer, too. So we'll see what happens. But notice in John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus is with the disciples in that upper room on the day of his resurrection. And he said to them as he was in their midst at the end of verse 19, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, the wounds of the crucifixion. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And so Jesus said to them again, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Up to that point, the Holy Spirit had only been with them because Jesus hadn't yet died on the cross for their sins and and risen from the dead. Now here they receive the Holy Spirit. He comes inside of their lives. Now, the third Greek preposition, the third relationship that we have with the Holy Spirit is described in Acts chapter one. You only have to turn a couple pages to the right. Is this great? To Acts chapter uh, 1. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus is speaking to these same disciples of a third relationship we're to have with the Holy Spirit using the third Greek preposition. In, in, in the Greek, it's a pi, E P I, and it's translated upon in verse 8. Now, let me read for you, beginning in verse 4. And being assembled together with them, these same disciples, Jesus commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be 
baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now, tend to be exact. Therefore, when you have come together, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Jesus is talking to them about the Holy Spirit. They want to have a sermon on prophecy. Everybody wants you want to you want to draw the fastest crowd that you can do a series on prophecy. So they're minimizing what Jesus is talking about concerning the spirit. And uh, they want a prophecy sermon. Jesus returns to the subject of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Verse eight. And he said, but you shall receive. That's a word worth circling power. That's a word worth circling. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, that's the Greek preposition of pi and and that's used there. That's worth circling. And you shall be witnesses, Jesus said to me, in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so the Holy Spirit was already with them. The Holy Spirit was already in them. But here Jesus now speaks to those same people of a third experience with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit coming upon them. And he refers to it in verse 5 as being baptized in the Holy Spirit. And that would happen on the day of Pentecost and just ten days later. Now notice that this baptism with the Holy Spirit, verse 8, is the provision of power in our lives as Christians. You shall receive Power word power is a beautiful word in the Greek. It's the word dunamis. We get our word dynamite from it. Dynamic dynamo. I mean, these strong, powerful words we get from that same word. This baptism with the Holy Spirit is the provision of dynamic power by the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit comes upon the life of of a Christian. I want you to notice further that it's not just the provision of power, but it is power that the Holy Spirit gives for a purpose. It isn't for those of you who remember the old, uh, it isn't power for me just to go and do whatever I want with as a Christian. Hey, Rocky, watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat. For those of you who remember Bullwinkle, I only watched it because, you know, too, back in those days, I mean, there was nothing on television in the morning on that. And so you watched Bullwinkle because they didn't have Looney Tunes happening yet. So anyway, enough about our problems of these boomers. It's power given for a purpose. And it is the power given to be witnesses to Jesus. Jesus said, you shall be witnesses to me. Now, notice that's more than the power to go out witnessing, though he gives us the power to do that because we're witnessing to Christ. But it's more than the power to witness. It is the power to be a witness Witnessing isn't just something that I do as a Christian. It is something that I am. The entirety of my life, 
When I open my mouth, if I don't open my mouth, my actions, my attitude, how I conduct myself, all of that is intended to testify to Christ, to be like him. And that we are able to do that because of the power of the Holy Spirit. And so essentially, this baptism with the Holy Spirit is the power of the Holy Spirit to live a life that looks like uh, looks like Christ. To walk like Him, to talk like Him, to live like Him, to think like Him, to love people the way that He did, to live a holy life like He lived it, to maintain an eternal perspective in this world, to obey the Father's will, even at the point of death. This is the power that the Holy Spirit gives us as a result of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I think that it's important to realize That even Jesus began his public ministry with the upon experience of the Holy Spirit. In in Matthew's gospel, chapter 13 through verse 17, let me read it for you. Jesus came from Galilee to John the Baptist at the Jordan in order to be baptized, water baptized by John the Baptist. John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you're coming to me to be baptized? Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John allowed him. And when he had been baptized, Jesus, he came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting up. Upon him, a pie, and suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We cannot live a Christ-like life apart from this baptism with the Holy Spirit. Can't be like him without it. Now, the terminology has always fascinated me. Why in the world... Would Jesus not just say, well, it's the upon experience of the Holy Spirit? Why does he specifically call it? Why does he give it a name? Why does he give it a title? And then why does he give it the title that he gives it? Why does he call it the baptism with the Holy Spirit? And I want you to notice in verse 5 his use of the term or the word baptized, because I think he's desiring to communicate something to us in in all of it. Have you ever hugged someone who has just been water baptized? We we water baptized by immersion here, because the word that's used for baptism in the Bible, it means to be immersed in. So we don't sprinkle or do any of these other things. Baptism was immersion. That was the Jews, Old Testament, New Testament. And so when you take somebody and you put them down um, under the water, and I always reserve the right to hold them as long as I feel is necessary to drive home the point to them that they are no longer what they once were, but now they're a new creation in Christ. We wait for a bubble sometimes. Try not to be a respecter of persons and all of it. Sometimes I just have a sense that certain people are to be held on under A great length of time. I don't do it as much as I used to in the old days. The reason I don't is all the kids in line, their eyes get gigantic. Mommy, I don't want to get water baptized. I don't want to get water baptized. I think I'm going to drown them. 
They're too young to have killed anybody yet or robbed a bank. So we put them down in the water. They come up out of the water and we escort them kind of by hand out of the pool. There's a bunch of people who love them and care about them that have come to watch this special day in their life. And they begin to hug them. They don't care what they're wearing. What happens when you hug somebody that's been water baptized? You get all over you whatever they've been baptized in. That's what happens in in baptism. So you get water all over you. When you've been baptized with the Holy Spirit, then when people come into contact with us, they're going to come into contact with the Holy Spirit. The baptism with the Holy Spirit is given in order that when people come into contact with me, not on extraordinary days like Sundays, but when they come into contact with me any day, any time of the day, that they will come into contact with the Holy Spirit in my life and not come into contact with the old Damien Kyle or the, and the severe limitations of, of my flesh and my fallenness. And so that's what the Holy Spirit wants. I never want a single person, and I'm not always successful in this, but I don't want a, a, another person in my history to ever come into contact with my life and come into contact with the old Damien Kyle. I don't want to do that to people ever again. I invested enough years in that. I want them to come into contact with the Holy Spirit flowing forth from my life. And God wants that to be the case too, not only concerning me, but you as well. And so this is the purpose of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now notice further that this baptism with the Holy Spirit is the power to live a life like Jesus anywhere in the world. In Jerusalem, Judea, verse 8 of, first, of, of Acts chapter 1. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. Here is the power to live for God. A power to have an overflow of the Holy Spirit out of our lives. To live a life like Christ anywhere in the world. In Germany, in India... In Greece, in Venezuela, in Mexico, in the United States, in Russia, in the United Kingdom, anywhere, anywhere in any city in the world. I noticed that they're working on trying to rebrand our city. I don't put it down. God bless people in trying to make a difference for our city. But this is the power to live in it for Christ in any city that we find ourselves in any apartment complex, in any neighborhood, in any school, in any work situation, in any marriage, in any family, with any parents. These commercials, I, in the old days, I don't know, sometimes I, when I'm watching television and usually it's sports or something. And, uh, and so I'm watching it and I, I can't believe how many advertisements there are for cell phones. And I don't care about cell phones. I have a cell phone. It's, it's a little bit better than the ones that were like this. The antenna that comes out and G.I. Joe thing. But those of you who are really into it, God bless you. But I watch these commercials, you know, and you got Verizon and AT&T and they got the blue screen and the red screen. And everybody's worried about where there's going to be a drop off. And can you get your calls here and where are you going to lose? 
This power of the Holy Spirit that is given to us, it, it doesn't wane anywhere. God is equally powerful in every part of the world. He's powerful on a plane. He's powerful in any part of the world that we would go into. No matter how dark it is and anti-Christian or how Christian that it might be in, in a true sense. There is no weakness here. There's no environment that we cannot look and say, I can live for Christ in this environment because of the baptism with the Holy Spirit. There's no uh, empty spots. But this raises the question and of how in the world does a person experience this baptism with the Holy Spirit? Notice in verse 8 that it's received. Jesus said, but you shall receive power. Now, receive is a gift word. You think I say, Jesus is going to give us something this great and it just kind of dangle it in front of us. The old carrot and stick routine. Listen, I give this to like super special people and only after they huff and they puff and they blow some house down. That's not who Jesus gives this baptism with the Holy Spirit uh, to. All we have to do to receive it as Christians is to simply ask. For it. It's just there for the asking. And this is exactly as Jesus taught in Luke chapter 11, verse 13. And I want you to go to the left now in your Bible, for those of you new to the Bible, to Luke chapter 11, because I want you to see it with your own eyes. Beginning in verse 9. Jesus said, I say to you, ask. That's a, that's, a word, that's a receive word. And it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? Of course not. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give a Rolls Royce to those who ask him? That's what he says. Offer something even more priceless. How much more will your heavenly Father give, that's a gift word, the Holy Spirit to those who ask? We receive this baptism of the Holy Spirit by simply asking God for it. And that is a prayer that God always hears and he always answers. I think it's important to realize that this whole baptism with the Holy Spirit, that's God's idea. It's the Father's idea. It isn't something that man's come up with or some section of you know, the body of Christ or Pentecostalism has come up with or charismatics have come up with or some churches come up with. The baptism with the Holy Spirit is the Father's idea. This is something that He wants us to have as His children. And any time we come to Him and we ask Him and just say, Father, I just pray for the power of Your Holy Spirit in my life 
because I want to live a life like Christ in this world. I don't want to live the life that I have been living. I don't want anyone to come into contact with the old me ever again. I want them to come into contact with you. And when a person prays that prayer, a Christian does, then God baptizes us with his Holy Spirit. And no Christian is the same before that prayer, after that prayer, as they were before that prayer. He gives it to us. He's eager to give it to us just for the asking. Now, some people ask for it, and then they wait for an emotion. I ask for that, and they're waiting for tingles, something, some kind of an emotional, physical, you know, evidence that it, it, it's happened. Well, when some people are baptized with the Holy Spirit... They have a very emotional experience. And you know what? That's terrific. Then there's other people who are baptized with the Holy Spirit. They, and we will recognize a new dynamic in our life, a new power in our life. But it isn't terribly emotional. We just sense it and we say, oh, that's very good. And uh, that's just like the Bible said it would be. And now I'm going to use it the way the Bible said to, to use this power. And all of it's fine. Either, however it happens in our lives, the main thing is, is you don't want to judge it, whether it's happened or it hasn't happened, based upon some emotional experience. We receive it by faith, and we know that we've received it because he promised to give it to whoever would ask for it. So the truthfulness of God, the very veracity of God is at stake on whether he's going to give this or not when we ask. So he says, you ask and I'll give it. So like salvation, it's received by faith. How do I know that I'm saved as a Christian? Because the Bible says I am. John 3.16, Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever, I'm a whosoever, believes or trusts in him, I have believed and trusted in Jesus for my salvation. Shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So I know that I am saved based upon the promise of Jesus himself, apart from any emotional experience that I might have had at conversion. Sometimes there's a... Whenever I pray with someone to receive the Lord, I always ask them a couple of questions before they leave me. I'll say... If someone, if you leave this room now and on your way to the car or wherever you're going, someone were to ask you whether you're saved or not, what would you say? And they typically, they're a little bit hesitant and they'll say, well, yes, I am saved. Say, exactly right, you are. And then I ask them a question I know they can't answer. I'm just, I'm a sick man. <laughs> I ask them the question of how do you know that you're saved? And I know they can't typically answer it uh, at, at that point. And so I take him to John uh, chapter 3, verse 16. And I ask him, are you a whosoever? Yes, I am. Have you just put your faith in Christ for salvation? Yes, I have. Then you will not perish, but you now possess everlasting life. You know you are born again and saved based upon God's word. 
And so uh, they leave greatly relieved related uh, to that that is not based upon a feeling, but because God has said it in, in, the, in his word. And the same thing is true related to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I need to walk by faith in God's word, knowing that he stands behind his word. When I ask for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, he gives it to me. And now I'm to walk in faith in everything that he says is mine by virtue of that baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, one big mistake that people make. You still with me? Let me, let me add this as well. Sometimes you don't know what I get asked at the back door. And whenever I, the two subjects, if I bring up uh, two subjects, uh, I get all kinds of questions. Number one, the other pastors on staff. I'm just kidding. Um, if I bring up, uh, do a teaching on prophecy, there are going to be a lot of questions that people have. And it's great. I'm not complaining at all. It's wonderful. And the second thing that provoke, prompts uh, just as many, probably more questions, is whenever I speak on the Holy Spirit. So everything I'm bringing up are things that I get asked numerous times at the back door on this issue because they're important to people. And most often concerning prophecy or concerning the Holy Spirit, a lot of people have already learned these subjects in a certain way. So I will say something that kind of jostles their belief system a little bit. And so uh, now they want to ask about it. So I've learned it's almost you almost don't open the subject up if you're not going to be at least halfway thorough related to it. So this is the reason for it. It's good for you anyway. And it's also my way. Now, one of the biggest mistakes that people Make And you don't want to make it as a Christian is to wait until you're perfect to ask for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And you can laugh at that. But there are some circles where they will teach Christians and they will say, listen, the Holy Spirit is a Holy Spirit. And he is. And the Holy Spirit will only indwell holy vessels. Well, got a problem there. Because we require the baptism with the Holy Spirit to live a Christ-like life. Christ is the definition of holiness. So if I demand that people become what they cannot come, become apart from the Holy Spirit, I doom them to a life of absolute frustration. You come and you ask for this baptism of the Holy Spirit, meaning it, whatever your condition is, with a desire to live like Christ, and the Lord will give it uh, to us. Now, sometimes we will get confused concerning all of this, and they say, well, I thought that we got everything we needed concerning the Holy Spirit when we were saved. I mean, after all, doesn't the Bible say in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5, that there's one baptism? This is one of the most oft-asked questions that I get asked on the subject of the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Doesn't Ephesians chapter 4 verse 5 say that there's one baptism and now you're talking about a baptism with the Holy Spirit? Well, it does talk about one baptism in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 5. And in that passage, the Apostle Paul is probably speaking about our conversion experience when we were baptized into or immersed into the body of Christ. It's a real experience. And again, in this vein, Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. 
1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and all have been made to drink into one spirit. But the Bible also speaks of the importance of water baptism as a Christian. Completely different experience. So in the Bible, there are at least three Christian experiences described as baptism, being baptized into the body of Christ, being water baptized and being baptized in the Holy Spirit. So Paul can't be saying something in Ephesians chapter four, verse five, that casts any kind of doubts upon the legitimacy of being water baptized or being baptized in the Holy Spirit because he taught the importance of all three of them. So he's merely saying that one of the many things that we have in common as Christians is the experience of being born again into the body of Christ, into the family of God. Now, um, let me show you a place in the book of Acts where we have the baptism with the Holy Spirit occurring in the lives of believers. In Acts chapter 8, if you just turn to the right, you'll get to it. So here in Acts chapter 8, it's in the early church. Um, You have a a deacon by the name of Philip, Philip who has gone into the area of Samaria. And he begins to preach the gospel to the Samaritans. And notice in verse 12, but when they believed, circle that word believed, is the same word as in John 3.16. We're talking about faith unto salvation. When these Samaritans believed Philip as he preached things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. So here you have a set of Christians who have a set of Samaritans who have become Christians by putting their faith in Christ. And then they've been water baptized in that early church. They would have never baptized somebody in water baptism if they hadn't been born again. So they've believed they're water baptized. And then in verse 14, the apostles back in Jerusalem, they hear that a revival's broken out in the area of Samaria. And all we've got is a a couple of deacons out there taking care of things. And we better dispatch a couple of apostles to find out what's going on there. So they sent Peter and John to them. Verse 15, who, when they had come down, they prayed for these same Samaritans that they might receive the Holy Spirit. And then notice in verse 16, for as yet he had he as yet he had fallen circle it upon none of them. They had only been baptized, water baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, some people experience this Baptism with the Holy Spirit when they're born again. The very moment that they're born again, they're baptized with the Holy Spirit. My wife, Karen, that happened to her. When I was born again, it would be several weeks later, like these Samaritan believers. Maybe it's I'm a Samaritan. Despise Samaritans. But it was several weeks later before I experienced the baptism with the Holy Spirit. There was a block of time between being born again and then receiving the baptism with the Holy Spirit. 
And, and so sometimes people look and they say, well, you receive everything of the Holy Spirit the moment that you're born again. I'm sorry, in Acts chapter 8, it, that doesn't add up. Now, it can for a lot of people, but you can't say that about everybody. Sometimes you can walk into a church that doesn't even hardly believe in the Holy Spirit. And they certainly don't believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And you walk in and the person that greets you at the front door, is she's about 130 years old and she's handing out bulletins. And she is as alive with the Holy Spirit as anyone you'd ever want to meet in your life. It's just pouring out of her in all directions. And if you were to sit down with her theologically and take her through and this and X and Y and Z and, and uh, the Pythagorean theorem and the whole, and she wouldn't understand the thing you're saying. But at some point in her life, she just surrendered to God and obviously wanted the fullness of God and, and the power to be able to live like Christ. And however that prayer went forth from her lips or from her heart, God honored that, baptized her with the Holy Spirit, though she may never use the terminology. But clearly, that's happened in her life. And so, my point is, is that this can happen at conversion. It can happen after conversion. Don't overthink it. If you have it, great. If you don't, then just ask God for it. Now, while we're talking about all of this, and in the uh, spirit of offending everyone... In Christianity, I also want to warn against anyone saying that the single great evidence that we're baptized in the Holy Spirit is speaking in tongues. Maybe, but not necessarily. And I'll tell you, I'm for every gift that God has for his people. I don't care what gift God looks at you and he says, this is the gift or gifts that I'm going to add to your life to make your life supernaturally. I don't care what anybody else in the whole body of Christ thinks about any of the gifts. I want you to have that gift. And those gifts, we're going to need those gifts. So I don't have a problem with the gift of tongues. Not at all. But I think there's a place concerning the baptism of the Holy Spirit where a portion of the body of Christ looks at it and, and says, well, you know, you know if you're baptized with the Holy Spirit because you'll speak in tongues. And if you don't speak in tongues, then you've never been baptized in the Holy Spirit. And I think that's very, very cruel to do to people. But the reason I take the position is not because of whether I think something is cruel or not, but from the Scriptures themselves. Again, in Acts chapter 8, there is clearly the experience of the upon of the Holy Spirit and there's no manifestation of tongues. They're baptized with the Holy Spirit and there's no mention of tongues. Now, if you come from a charismatic background or a Pentecostal background, this is the typical response that you would give me. And I say it respectfully. You'll say something supernatural happened in that place there had to be some supernatural manifestation because Simon the sorcerer wanted to have the power to impart the Holy Spirit when he saw what it was that the apostles, the effect of this baptism of the Holy Spirit upon believers. And so the assumption is made that they spoke in tongues. Never speak into God's silence on this issue or on any issue. 
Never think into his silence. Never speak into his silence. He has a tremendous vocabulary. If he wanted to declare that they were all baptized with the Holy Spirit at that event, he could have done it. He doesn't do it. I think the reason he doesn't do it is he wants wiggle room on this issue. I think it's just as important for us as Christians to hear that for the other four out of the five times that there is a recording of the baptism of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, there was the gift of tongues. I don't want to, I don't want to disincline a single person toward asking God and seeking Him for that gift, though the Bible says not all will speak in tongues. Maybe they didn't in Acts chapter 8. Maybe they did. God is keeping it to Himself. I think so that we would have at least one place where it would stop teachers like me from coming to Christians and saying, baptism of the Holy Spirit will always be manifested in tongues. So He leaves it out to keep us from doing that to people. Paul said, In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, concerning the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And he said, are all apostles? It's rhetorical questions. The answer is no. Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? No, no. Everyone doesn't have all of the gifts. Do all have gifts of healings? No. Do all speak with tongues? Again, rhetorical question. No. In the body of Christ, they don't. Do all interpret? No. But earnestly desire the best gifts. And Paul said, And yet I will show you a more excellent way. You possess at least one gift from the Holy Spirit. Many of you probably possess multiple ones. God's purposes for your life. But all of us have at least one gift of the Holy Spirit. And so we're not left behind or we're not less as a Christian because we don't have the gift of tongues. So I, Paul, like he spoke to the church at Corinth, he says, I'm glad that I, uh, I, I speak in tongues more than you all. Here's a, here's a man in, in, in terms Jesus is his own, in his own category. Paul is almost in his own category in terms of how highly we esteem the spirituality of the man in terms of all of uh, church history. And, and he speaks uh, openly and, and in, a, in a great way related to the gift of tongues and, and its operation. He said, I would, did you all spoke in tongues? It was his attitude toward it. I think it's a healthy attitude toward the gift of tongues. I'm just saying that if you were baptized in the Holy Spirit when you were 14 or 24 or 34 and you have doubted it all these years because you didn't receive the gift of tongues at the same time, I'm bringing you out of that bondage this morning, the biblical basis for it. But don't be afraid to still ask for the gift of tongues if God has that for you. So just relax related to that. The greatest evidence that we've been baptized with the Holy Spirit is going to be Christ-likeness. It's going to be the love of God. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control, and against such there is no law. And that is what the baptism with the Holy Spirit will look like in our lives, to love people and to live as Christ did. I'm almost done. Uh, So we don't have to order out pizzas. This is very critical to understand. Technically, the Bible teaches that there is one baptism with the Holy Spirit in a Christian's life, but there's many refillings. 
In Acts chapter 2, the disciples are baptized with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. But you can read it on your own a little bit later in chapter 4 of the same book of Acts. Great persecution is coming against them. They ask to be refilled with the Holy Spirit. If you're already there, Acts chapter 4, verse uh, 31. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the Word of God with boldness. Again, no mention of tongues there. So here you have this, where these men and women have already been baptized in the Holy Spirit, but here's a place where they get refilled. So we get baptized with the Holy Spirit. He's on our life. He's pouring out of our life. And then yet there are times where we need to just say, Lord, would you freshly refill me with your Holy Spirit? Why would we need to be refilled with the Holy Spirit? Because we leak. And because we give out of the Holy Spirit. Moms, it's Mother's Day. I don't need to explain this to you. You begin the day with your quiet time. Read a little something from the Old Testament, a little something from the New Testament. Read your devotional. You're prayed up. I mean, you're just like Jesus. And then they wake up. <laughs> and you start to give out and you start to give out. And then one's in this mood and then the other one's picking on this one because they know they're in that mood and they can really get them when they got them. And here you are. And by 10 o'clock, there's so much of the old you coming out. You hate yourself. So what do you do? Quarter to ten, you ask to be refilled with the Holy Spirit. You take that anywhere into life where we look and say, there is too much. Some of you that are in the field, the Tao drops a thousand points in one day. You come to the office men or whatever and you, your work and you're all set filled with the Spirit, thinking like God and all of this, and then this rush of phone calls and emergencies and this and this and that, and by 10 o'clock you're needing to be filled, refilled with the Holy Spirit as much as anyone. And so it is in all of life to just ask to be refilled as often as, as we need, and the Lord will do it. Sometimes people say, you know, I was baptized in the Holy Spirit back in 1965. And I think to myself, do you know how long ago that was? Have you asked to be refilled yet? No. Nope. Just did it back in 65, and it's one of the fondest memories I have. Walk like Christ for three hours. And then it's been the old me ever since. Got to be refilled with the Holy Spirit. People come into our lives. They pull from our lives. They draw virtue from our lives. They demand of our lives. And so to ask to be refilled so that the Holy Spirit is coming out of our lives. Now, I'll close with this by having you turn to John chapter 7, verse 37. And we just trust here, as we always can, for Jesus to make things very, very super simple for all of us. You say, why didn't you start there? That's none of your business. I don't explain everything. Now, it lays a foundation for this. John chapter 7, verse 37. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus stood and he cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. 
And he who believes in me, as the Spirit has said, out of his heart or his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Holy Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive after he had risen from the dead as crucifixion and resurrection. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. When you do this, receive this baptism with the Holy Spirit, Jesus said there will be a dynamic in our life concerning the Holy Spirit where the Holy Spirit is so great in our lives that he not only satisfies our spiritual thirst and the needs in our life, but satisfies the spiritual thirst of those around us. And so by the Holy Spirit, I mean, you picture it, this great uh, Greg Laurie did a cartoon way back when, and uh, you, the character in the cartoon was Ben Born Again, and, uh, and he characterize this this is just as a gigantic gush of water like a fire hydrant coming out of his innermost being i've always loved that picture related to the baptism of the holy spirit that's what it is we become spiritual fire hydrants in the world or we become spiritual drinking fountains in the world so that when people then again come into contact with our lives they begin to experience the overflow of the holy spirit out of our lives in, in those in that Middle East there in, in Israel, I mean, water, living water was the, absolutely priceless. And uh, here he's talking about a spiritual living water coming out of our lives where people come into our lives, come into contact with God. And then the spiritual thirst is satisfied as we tell them about Christ. So Jesus not only quenches our spiritual thirst for ourselves, but he then works through us to quench the spiritual thirst of others. You think today about how many people are going to be impacted by the physical rivers of this world. The Jordan River, the Mississippi, the Rhine, the Tigris-Euphrates River. All of these rivers that flow all around the world. And how many of them are, how many people will be impacted today by these rivers. And in the same way, God has called us as Christians to be the source of a great flowing spiritual river all around this world. His people in every nation all around the world that as we ex experience this baptism with the Holy Spirit, that there is a river that's found in every nation, every city, every kindred, every tongue. And more people would be affected by the spiritual river flowing out of God's people than are even affected physically by all of the physical rivers in the world. And that's what it's given for. You trust Jesus to make it so simple. The question no longer is, though we're glad for investing the time in it, one of terminology of Greek prepositions, but rather is there a torrent of living water coming out of your innermost being? Is a Christian. Is that a description of your Christian life? I'm not laying a guilt trip on anyone. I'm just saying it. Does that represent your daily Christian existence? And if it does, praise the Lord. But if it doesn't, then there is a greater relationship available to you with the person of the Holy Spirit. 
And it's there just for the asking, just for the receiving. The book of Acts, sometimes in my Bible that I've got right in front of me, the title for the book of Acts is it says the Acts of the Apostles. Don't believe it. I know the apostles. They couldn't have pulled off anything from chapter one all the way through. That whole book is the acts of the Holy Spirit through God's people. A record of the Holy Spirit. Every one of us needs to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. I don't think we'll survive as a Christian without it. I mean, we'll, we'll be, end up saved and in heaven one day because that's a set thing. But spiritually, in the dynamic of this world, in this hour in human history, we all need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. But not just for our own survival, but for God's glory. So that the thinking of the men and the women in Modesto and Salida and Houston and Turlock and all the different cities around us, that this would become the common experience that they have when they come into contact with Christians. That there is a supernatural about their life. That's what God intends to characterize his body and his people. And so here we are. We're not alone in this world trying to live this Christian life against these humanly impossible odds, this great diabolical trinity of the flesh and the world and the devil coming against us every single day. We say, that's it, uncle. I can't survive in it. Up against all of that. And all of that is significant. We have the Holy Spirit with us. We have the Holy Spirit in us. And we have the Holy Spirit upon us. We're not alone in this Christian life and in this Christian life walk. All of those things related to the Spirit are greater than anything that we would face or even the greatness of that diabolical trinity coming against us in all of its force. The power of the Holy Spirit to live this life. Am I baptized with the Holy Spirit? If I'm not, then it's there for the asking, for the asking this morning. Let's pray together. I just want to ask as we sit here today, if you sit and say no,